my great pleasure and privilege to welcome you uh, this evening and to introduce the Dudleyan Lectures to you. In case you were wondering, though I am quite old, this, <laughs> the series being endowed in 1750 is not named after me. <laughs> and more about the lectures and their founder in a moment. But first, a few other items. Uh, Dean David Hempton sends his regrets this evening. He would be in my place were he here, but he is traveling on school business. Also, our thanks goes to the Office of Academic Affairs for organizing the lecture tonight, especially Assistant Dean for Academic Affairs, Karen Grindler Whitaker, Margie Jenkins, the Coordinator for Academic Affairs Office, and also to my colleague, uh, David Hall on the Emeriti faculty, who conceived and organized both the lecture tonight and tomorrow's workshop. The workshop tomorrow will run from 12 noon to two at the Center for the Study of World Re religions just across the street. It is entitled Reformation, Dialogue, and Identity. Participants for tomorrow's event are Professor Lim, tonight's speaker, uh, Professor Sanchez, Professors Sanchez and Hall, who are on the faculty here at HDS, and Re Machikas Bridges, who is one of our doctoral students. And all of you are invited tomorrow, and lunch will be provided. So before we start, two uh, housekeeping uh, thoughts. First, if you could make sure to uh, turn off or silence all electronic devices. And second, for your information, we are videotaping tonight's lecture and it will be posted on our website in the coming days. We are also live webcasting it, so I would like to take this opportunity to welcome those viewers online uh, wherever you may be. Let me talk a bit about the oldest and most distinguished endowed lecturer at Harvard, the Dudleyan, and thereby honor the donor who 267 years ago had the idea of this annual lecture. In 1750, Paul Dudley endowed it with a sum of 133 pounds. Paul Dudley was born in 1675, and after graduating from Harvard in 1690, so you can do the math on that, <laughs> he was 15 uh, when he graduated. Uh, no, yes, that's true. Uh, he studied law at the Temple, the area famous for law and the noted center for barristers and judges in London. And afterwards, he returned to Boston and became Attorney General and eventually Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Uh, the Chief Justice died in 1751. The first lecture in the lecture series was presented in 1755 by Edward Holyoke, an early American clergyman and the ninth president of Harvard. It was entitled Proof of Natural Religion. Recent speakers in the lecture series include Robert Schreider from Catholic Theological Union, uh, Sister Mary Hughes, former president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, and Susan Harjo, Native American rights activist, and Kathleen Cummings of Notre Dame, who is still remembered for her lecture on the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, and Dr. Tyler Roberts of Grinnell College last year. Our distinguished speaker this evening is our colleague from Vanderbilt University, Dr. Paul C.H. Lim. We are delighted to have him here tonight. 
and he will give his talk entitled Reformation and Racial Taxonomics, an Underexplored Narrative of Modernity. My distinguished colleague, Professor David Hall, who truly needs no introduction and is well known to everyone in this room, will introduce our speaker. We owe this evening's lecture and a whole series of events celebrating the threads of the Reformation and the important developments that they brought about to Professor Hall. And we invite everyone to view our magnificent exhibition on the Reformation after the lecture, if you have time and are interested. The main exhibition, Reformation, Dialogue, and Identity, is on display in the second floor of Andover Hall or Andover Harvard Library, excuse me. As a special treat, there is tonight a pop-up exhibit next door in the Pfeiffer Room, just to my right, uh, only for half an hour following the lecture, and it features materials held by the Andover Harvard Theological Library relating to Professor Lim's lecture tonight. So please stop by the Pfeiffer Room afterwards and take a look. It is now my pleasure to invite uh, David Hall, Bartlett Professor of New England Church History Emeritus to the podium to introduce tonight's speaker, our guest from Vanderbilt University. Uh, thank you, Dudley, and thank those who have helped make this possible. And I wanna thank particularly the two librarians who are here, Maureen and and uh, <laughs> for uh, both doing the major exhibition in the library proper and the pop-up, which I had the pleasure of seeing uh, a few minutes ago. The Hanover Harbor Library is an unusual library in that it is both you know, current materials, periodicals, but also a rare book room of some quite extraordinary depth thanks to Actually, thanks in part to the fact that we retained the books of Andover Seminary when the schism between the two occurred, well, they were united and then very briefly, after a very brief union, divorced, and we kept the books. Uh, so uh, some might call it theft, but let's, let's you, you didn't hear me say that. So this is the second public event uh, celebrating or acknowledging the 500th anniversary of the Reformation that began in 1517. I invite, remind you that a few weeks ago, uh, under the auspices of my colleague Kevin Madigan, we listened to uh, Brad Gregory of, of Notre Dame University uh, speaking about the unintended consequences of the Reformation based on a book of his by that, by that title. Tonight, Professor Lim, tomorrow a workshop, and then uh, next uh, Wednesday, uh, yours truly speaking about uh, well, the title is The Origins of Puritanism. Take that a little lightly. And that means Puritanism in the 16th century, not 20th century, or 20th century Puritanism, which we're seeing reborn here at Harvard University as I speak uh, by Dean Kurtzman and others uh, in the yard, um, uh, Katsuma in the yard. Uh, unfortunately, there's no lunch accompanying my, my talk, <laughs> which has been put at the indelicate hour of one o'clock, so you'll have to come well-fed uh, and uh, to hear me, and that is in the Rabinowitz room in the, in the library. Uh, and there will also be, I think, a pop-up uh, book exhibition relating to that. 
Paul M. comes to us, as has already been mentioned, from Vanderbilt University, where he is a member of the faculty of the Divinity School and also an associate, or associate, also appointed as an associate in the Department of History. He went from Yale College, where he was undergraduate, to seminary, and then to Cambridge, England, where he earned a PhD in the history of Christianity in 2001 under the mentorship of the redoubtable Eamon Duffy. And my wife told me not to tell my anecdote about Eamon Duffy. So only those of you who come to dinner tonight will get me to, to hear the story of cheese, French cheese, and me and Eamon Duffy. <laughs> Degree in hand, he came to Gordon-Conwell, our sister seminary to the, to up, up in the, on the coast of Massachusetts, where he taught historical and systematic theology before moving to Vanderbilt in 2006. And his time at Gordon-Conwell is notable in a number of ways, but specifically in relation to our program here, he trained, helped train a cadre of students, master students, who came here for their PhDs or THD degrees, at the time we still had that degree, uh, all of whom I had the privilege of teaching and all of whom have gone on to do quite important work uh, since. And they look back to Paul as an important mentor of, of theirs. And we're grateful to that stream of students uh, as, as an enriching stream of students in our program here. And I should say that having uh, been Paul's guest at Vanderbilt uh, uh, two and a half years ago, uh, I realized anew that he is a great convener and supporter of, of students who want to work on the Reformation period, or we might say Reformation and Reformation broadly construed, Reformation and politics, religion and politics. Uh, and, uh, and there he's part of a group of people that includes uh, the historian Peter Lake, perhaps the most important uh, historian presently working in the field of Tudor Stuart history, and a community of students whom I got to meet uh, who are doing also really, really quite interesting work. An enviable, an enviable place to be, Vanderbilt University, in this field at this moment in time with faculty such as Paul and Peter Lake. Paul himself is a distinguished scholar whose books happen to sit on my desk at this very moment, not because he has turned up, although that's a little bit of the influence, but because of their intrinsic merits and their pertinence to what I am working on myself at this moment. The first, his dissertation, turned into a book published by Brill in 2004, uh, was a study, a close study, a careful study of the ecclesiology of one of the most interesting figures in British Protestant history in the 17th century, uh, Richard Baxter, a kind of oddball out in a number of ways. He was a moderate Puritan who was willing at the time of the Restoration to accept a compromising, a compromised position in the Church of England, which, which the hardcore people rejected. Uh, and I might add, Richard Baxter was a friend and correspondent of people here in New England. He got to be a good friend with Increase Mather when Mather was in London in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, a well-known correspondent of John Woodbridge of Connecticut who wrote him about his complaints about being in the woods, the sticks down there in Connecticut, and how so many people were not baptized uh, in his parish. Uh, complaints uh, with why I might sympathize. Uh, and the second, more recent book, published in 2012 and already the recipient, uh, recipient of a prize, is entitled Mystery Unveiled. That's a play on a uh, 17th century title. Mystery Unveiled, The Crisis of the Trinity in Early Modern England. And while there are many, many topics in, 
English theology, British theology of this period that had been studied. Paul's is the first, I think, that I know of that in a deep systemic way with full, full attention to the patristic uh, a context in which the debate was occurring in England in the middle of the 17th century, sometimes known as the Socinian controversy because the Italian turned Polish Socinius was, uh, or his publications were in part the, the source of this controversy. Uh, his is the first really serious, substantial, complex study of this, of this debate. So just to conclude, I think what's really important, and I, and I look out at you and I can see that some of you already know Paul or know Paul's work, that Paul belongs in the company of reformation, sorry, of reform or evangelical affiliated scholars who for the past 20 or 30 years or even longer have been revisiting the reform tradition itself and in particular revisiting its history in Britain with implications for how it might be considered or understood in the playing out in this country. In the 1960s, when at Yale myself, I began to study this same tradition, there were no university-related evangelical scholars in my purview, none. And although George Marsden was coming along at Yale when I was there, uh, I didn't actually know George, uh, unfortunately, his early work was a sign of things to come that this community was beginning to emerge. Evangelical historians, people with commitments to the evangelical tradition were now going to take on the 17th century, the 16th century in interesting ways. And now in all sorts of places, this is happening. Uh, most especially, of course, uh, thanks to Richard Muller of Calvin Seminary in, in, in Michigan, a really prodigious scholar who has single-handedly really transformed how we understand what's called reform scholasticism and in some ways the Calvinist tradition. But not just Calvin College or Calvin Seminary or Vanderbilt or Regent College or pastor teachers like Mark Deaver in Washington, D.C., who's the author of a really fantastic, also a Cambridge dissertation on Richard Sibbs. Uh, a great outpouring of work is occurring, hard to keep up with, often not reviewed in the right places, hard to keep up with. Uh, 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 the hardest to keep up with. I actually w asked an audience of about 100 intellectual historians uh, a year ago, how many of them have heard of this scholar uh, 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 of a book on assurance of salvation by a man named Beeky who single-handedly founded the Puritan Seminary in Michigan. How about that, Harvard Divinity School? And the answer was no one in that audience had heard of his scholarship never reviewed in the, main, in the mainstream periodicals. That's not good. So Paul, as I say, I, 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 it's a pleasure to welcome him here to Harvard uh, because of his connections to our past, including even the Dudleyan lecture, uh, and our future. So I ask you to welcome him as he speaks on reformation and racial taxonomies and underexplored narrative of modernity. Good afternoon. It's a great delight to be here at Harvard Divinity School. Um, the last time I was here giving a talk was when Professor Sarah Coakley was still on faculty. She had a seminar on Trinitarian and anti-Trinitarian controversies, and I was asked to be one of the uh, uh, guest speakers for that. And I, I guess it was around 2004 or five, so it's been a while. 
Um, and all the usual and particular thanks to those who made this event possible. Um, I would like to particularly acknowledge um, Dean Grunler uh, Whitaker and, and Margie, and they put this event together. Uh, the logistical details were just impeccable and just insuperably wonderful. Uh, you know, do speak here and there um, quite often, and I gotta say that they have just you know, uh, done uh, a job that's uh, better than anywhere else I've been. And hard for me to say that about Harvard as a Yale but there you have it. So, um, and also especially to uh, um, my dear friend David Hall uh, for his um, work and seeing the significance of the Reformations, uh, the 500th year of commemorating that event in many different ways. And as you'll hear tonight, um, the... I guess it depends on how you look at it. If you're a certain particular um, scholar interested in this tradition, um, might walk away slightly puzzled, perplexed, or even angered, perhaps. But I guess as someone who is sort of a Johnny-come-lately to the Christian story, um, I became a Christian as a junior at Yale. And so I feel as though it's, it's a story that is intrinsic and extrinsic to my identity, and there is a sort of a dialectical tension in my journey. So I don't feel any responsibility to make sure that Christians come off sounding wonderful, because there was a kind of a, a pressure for some segment in the, in the Christian scholarship or scholarship that have, has to do with Christianity to ensure that in the end, there is a hagiographical kind of bent to things. Nor am I particularly interested in what I would call, what many would call heresiography, making sure that they end up sounding like the worst kind of people out there. And we both know the types of scholarly world that is out there. The occasion for this uh, particular paper is actually about 12 years old. I've been at Vanderbilt for about 12 years. Um, and every spring I teach a course called History of Christianity in the Reformation Era. And the, the, the very first semester I got there, I decided to revise the already existing curriculum, I mean, that syllabus, which is wonderful um, and used by my immediate predecessor, uh, the late Dale Johnson, and um, it was a great course. But I decided to add a little uh, additional component to the syllabus, and that had to do with Reformation and race. So does it have anything to do with each other? And the two figures that we're going to talk about, namely Bartolome de las Casas and Morgan Godwin, were new entrants into this course that had hitherto not been explored in any way, at least not within the purview of Reformation historiography. So Reformation, Dialogue and Identity, I love the way that this was framed as both today and tomorrow's workshop. What kind of dialogue did they have, or was it more of a diatribe? was what kind of identity formation or reformation or consolidation and collision. Um, so this whole rate, Reformation and racial taxonomies, it is not something we talk a lot about, perhaps because Reformation historiography was often carried out by those who are either sympath sympathetic to the various impulses of the Reformations or identified with it. Here I do acknowledge David's uh, writing on the contrast between seminary historians and secular historians' approach to the topic of history of Christianity, or in particular about the study of Puritanism. So here is what I will try to argue in this paper. That there was a construction of racial taxonomy that had already been embryonically formed in the late medieval period, but with the post-1492 arrival in European consciousness, 
both politically, religiously, and economically, there arose the need to taxonomize, classify, and thus um, authorize the racially and religiously different people. In this historical moment, difference was translated as in inferior inferiority in the eyes of the European beholder. This talk is about the struggle to resist the taxonomy and the collision between two anthropological classificatory system, and doing that will take us to the 16th century Catholic endeavors in this area through the life of, as I mentioned, Bartolome de las Casas in his work in Spain, Española, and Mexico, and to the 17th century Protestant endeavors through the life of Morgan Godwin in his work in London, Virginia, and Barbados. In doing so, we will be able to get a better sense of the sort of long durée consequence of the Reformation struggle over racial and religious others. In other words, this talk will be a bifocal visionary exercise. So one Catholic, the other Anglican, who lived in the 16th and 17th centuries respectively. One was a Spanish Dominican, whereas the other a Protestant clergy, living in Spain and England before, the, before living in the colonial New World. So, Let's start with this particular individual, Las Casas. He was, in many ways, larger than life. As with all mythological figures, perspectives on Las Casas and his legacy often serve as a reflecting mirror showing the political, theological, and philosophical viewpoints of the admirers and critics themselves. He is heralded by many as the apostle among the Indians, their noble protector or the father of America, whereas he has also been excoriated as a pious fraud fanatic, the father of the infamous black legend, and even a court gadfly, a and, or someone who was overly paranoid, or as a henchman of Spanish ecclesiastical imperialism, or yet, rather than being truly concerned with the plight of the indigenous Amerindians, Los Casas' ultimate concern was implementing a more humane form of exploitation so that these hapless victims could be more, quote, benevol benevolently converted peacefully exploited and successfully incorporated as members of a new subject colony where existence depended on the dictates of the king in the imperial capital. So we can see the polarization over Las Casas' identity and legacy. So we will talk about uh, Las Casas for about 25, 20, 25 minutes and then move to Godwin to talk about, about that length and then we'll take Q&A. Let's go to Valladolid, Spain, in September 1549. There, Antonio Canseco was a notary public who was called into the Dominican monastery of San Pablo. In the center of the room was a friar with his head and beard shaven, looking quite frail in body but sharp in mind. His name was Domingo de Betances, as other Dominican friars looked on with concern, Betances, his hand, he handed the notary public a piece of paper, which had been addressed to the Council of the Indies regarding the ontological nature of the Indians in the New World as he had gone there as a missionary. He had concluded that the Amer Amerindians were beasts and not humans due to their cannibalism, idolatrous practices, and overall irrational nature. Through some tantalizing twist of fate or providence, here was the friar in his dying moments about to offer a recantation of his previous position, with his brothers nervously and, in, and intensely staring at him to ensure that he got to say all that he needed to clear up the records before he passed. 
Betanzas died a few days after that, and his fellow Dominicans ensured that his retraction statement, now certified by the notary public, reached the Council of the Indies. This intriguing episode raises a number of key questions as we delve into the heart of our lecture this evening. Who was Betanzas, and how important was he that his fellow Dominicans endeavored to extract from him a deathbed repentance and retraction? How prevalent was this view that evaluated the Amerindians as unfit for self-governance, thus in need of Spanish colonial, paternalistic governance or guidance? Three, what was the connection between Betances and Bartolome de las Casas? Four, how is this fantastic deathbed confession connected with the larger debate between Las Casas and Juan de Guinea Sepulveda that will take place in the same city, Valladolid, a year later? Betances has served in the New World as a Dominican missionary, and he had said, among other things, that the Amerindians were bestias or beasts. According to Louis Hankey, the period between 1492 and 1512, that is between the historic or tragic landing of Columbus and the passing of the laws of Burgos, the Spanish rule in the land previously occupied and ruled by Amerindians was a period of what some will call ruthless exploitation, something Las Casas himself will remind the early modern readers with his publication of the Brevissima Relacion de la Destruction de las Indias in 1552. The conquistadors who set sail across the Atlantic to the putative New World echoed a sentiment of Cortes, who said that he came to serve God and to get rich. From the vantage point of Anton de Montesinos, Bartolomé de las Casas, and other what some would call indigenists, meaning a group of Spanish missionaries who became avowed defenders of the human rights and property ownership of the indigenous Amerindians, the first part of serving God was hardly recognizable. Many of the Spaniards, quote, had taken Indian women to serve them as concubines, and this inexorably soured the relationship between the Spaniards and the Amerindian men. Food shortage was another problem, and after one disaster upon another, Indian labor was increasingly drafted to hunt for gold or to, to grow crops for Spaniards. The economic system that evolved from this dire need of labor and production of food and other supplies was the encomienda system, something that many of us are aware of, and the Spanish men ruling over the Amerindians were called encomenderos whose attitude toward those laboring for them was in no way a reflection of the Lord in whose name they would come and to conquer the land belonging to the alleged cannibals for whom Christ had also died. Or did he, was the question. Something the conquistadores simply refused to acknowledge, and instead they, with the help of learned theologians and scholars, and of course Aristotle, about whom we will see later on, the philosopher himself would create a racial taxonomy to keep white Europe on top and the black and brown Africa and Indies at the bottom. The encomienda system was a system that was in every way unfairly structured for the Amerindians in theory, and in practice it turned out much worse and diabolical, an exploitative economic structure, which Las Casas called a deadly pestilence to consume the Indians. Thus, by December 1511, the Dominican friar, Antonio Montesinos preached his Advent sermon from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. For those of us who are not from the high liturgical tradition, Advent is Christmas time, and imagine preaching this sermon around Christmas time. 
The text was Isaiah 40, verse 3, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, typifying the prophetic ministry of both Isaiah and John the Baptist. Let's listen to the moral outrage with which Montesinos dropped this homiletical bomb. This voice declares that you are in mortal sin and live and die therein by reason of the cruelty and tyranny that you practice on these innocent people. Tell me by what right or justice do you hold these Indians in such cruel and horrible slavery? By what right do you wage such detestable wars on these people who lived mildly and peacefully in their own lands, where you have consumed infinite numbers of them with unheard of murders and desolations? Why do you so greatly oppress and fatigue them, not giving them enough to eat or caring for them when they fall ill from excessive labors, so that they die or rather are killed by you, so that you may extract and acquire gold every day? And what care do you take that there they receive religious instruction and come to know their God and Creator, or that they be baptized, hear Mass, or observe holidays and Sundays? Are they not humans? Do they not have rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourselves? How can you live in such profound and lethargic slumber? Be sure that in your present state you can no more be saved than the Moors or Turks who do not have and do not want the faith of Jesus Christ. It was against such men as the Las Casas of those early days of the conquest that Montesinos raised his voice. Las Casas obtained Indian slaves, worked them in mines, and attended to the cultivation of his estates. The affairs of the young university graduate, Las Casas prospered. While he did not mistreat his Indians, no doubts concerning the justice of his actions disturbed him, even though he had become a priest. In 1512, he participated in the conquest of Cuba and received as a reward both land and the service of some Indians. So as Montesinos preached his sermon, the colonists were stunned, but immediately after the shock wore off, they complained bitterly to the Dominican provincial there, Pedro de Cordoba, and Cordoba, rather than chastising the firebrand preacher, expressed his solidarity with him, so much so that the next Sunday's preacher was Montesinos, and the sermon text was exactly the same one. The response of the Dominican provincial in Spain to the Montesinos affair, however, could not have been more diametrically opposite. The members of the Council of the King Our Lord, it writes, determined that you should be brought back to Spain because of certain propositions that one of you preachers in detriment of our religion. And as a consequence of your preaching, the whole of the Indies is ready to revolt. And as a result, neither you nor any other Christian will be able to remain there. The hyperbolical excesses notwithstanding, Antonio de Loaiza's official response as the head of the Dominican order in Spain was that neither Montesinos nor any indigenous challenge of the authority and the sovereignty of the Spanish imperial presence in the New World was sufficient. The war raised on the Indians was durably just war because the native inhabitants of the Indies had disqualified their rights uh, to their own land due to their sin of cannibalism and human sacrifice and that they were infidels and that they were brute beasts. Furthermore, the 1493 papal bull Intercetera issued by Pope Alexander VI granted to the Spanish crown all the lands, quote, 100 leagues toward the west and south from any of the islands known as the Azores and Cape Verde, end quote. However, as Anthony Pagden rightly noted, many Thomists at the University of Salamanca, 
particularly the Dominican Francisco de Vitoria, knew that this 1493 bull was insufficient as theological justification for the Castilian crown's principal aim to dominium, or right to own, in America. Something better had to be invented. So he writes, since, however, the power to make such donations rested on the papal assumption of temporal authority over both Christians and pagans, an assumption which only the canonists were willing to endorse, the bulls provided very shaky grounds, indeed, for conquest. Just as a parenthetical note, when we talk about this in my history, Reformation history class, students really are often quite surprised to see that the Pope could actually allow the Castilian crowns to go and take the land over there. That, and that meant that the Pope had some kind of secular or earthly claim over the realms and territories. And that's something that for many of the Protestant or secular students, they have a hard time getting their head around. They weren't the only ones who had a hard time getting their head around, by the way. Once they had been detached from their Cicero papal claims, they only imposed upon the Castilian crown a duty, a duty to evangelize, but they could not confer upon it a corresponding right of dispossessing the Indians, so writes Pagden. So one of the intra-Catholic debates during the era of the Reformation dealt with the proprietary rights of the Spanish crown, abetted by papal authority over the lands that hitherto it had absolutely no jurisdictional power nor any previous relations at all. Whereas the Salamanca School of Francisco de Vitoria, Domingo de Soto, Melchor Cano, and Francisco Suarez would not go as far as Juan Genes de Sepulveda, who argued that the cannibalistic practices and human sacrifices of the Amerindians was the reason for their loss of dominium, as we will see below, this debate over canon law and interpretation of natural law was not merely a scholastic debate. It had epoch-making consequences. Thus, while the Salamanca school did not create a racial taxonomy of superiority versus inferiority, based on Aristotle's teaching in his Politics Book 1, Part 5, we shall see that Sepulveda comes quite close. And by the time one comes to the 17th century, the Rubicon had been crossed. That is, extensive dividing up of humanity according to color, complexion, and hue as a way of keeping white Europeans and their Christianity on top while keeping any other religion and any other color at bottom. What was it that Aristotle actually said about this natural slave theory? So let's listen to Aristotle here. He writes, And doubtless if men differ from one another in the mere forms of their bodies, as much as the statues of the gods do from men, all would acknowledge that the inferior class should be slaves of the superior. And if this is true of the body, how much more just that a similar distinction should exist in the soul. But the beauty of the body is seen, whereas the beauty of the soul is not seen. It is clear, then, that some men are by nature free and others slaves, and that for these latter slavery, for, and for these latter, slavery is both expedient and right. Thus writes Aristotle. It seems clear that as one reads Aristotle's politics that he did not make an argument based upon color, yet such an innateist argument would find eager interpreters who would apply it in the context to allocate the role of masters to the Europeans and slaves to the Africans and Amerindians and others. This not-so-quite-rumblings during the Long-Dury Reformation era is one of the key tributaries of modernity. If modernity, as we experience it now, 
One of the hallmarks of that is to struggle with regard to identity and sovereignty, both individually, collectively, socially, and nationally concerned, something that mostly goes undetected in the historiographical radars of Reformation historians. So I'm completing this manuscript for a book on uh, uh, Reformation theology, and one of the chapters is actually this particular uh, paper that I'm delivering, sort of a contrast between Las Casas and Godwin and a whole host of other players in this time period around this topic of racial and religious others. So let's uh, turn our attention to the famous showdown between Bartolome de las Casas and Juan Guinez de Sepulveda. So a quick uh, kind of run timeline for Las Casas' life. 1484, born in Seville, Spain. 1502, at age 18, leaves for first trip to Espaniola. And in 1506, is ordained deacon in Seville. And the year after that, goes to Rome, and there he is ordained priest. And as we talked about earlier, in 1511, he hears Father Antonio de Montesinos famous homily condemning the encomienda system on December 21st. And then in 1518 and 19, he actually began a peaceful colonization experiment in Venezuela, which failed. He felt that the slavery system perhaps could be kind of more benignly appropriated, and he tries that sort of experimentation and didn't work. In 1522, at age 36, enters the Dominicans, the Order of Preachers, and then begins writing his Historia General de las Indias, one of the, I think, one most valuable sources of early discovery and conquest of the New World. And then in 1530, he writes this track, a very influential track, which becomes one of the favorite books for Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, called De Unico Vocationis Modo Omnium Infidelium et Veram Religionem, the one way to uh, bring, the, the, bring the gospel, the true religion, to all the unbelievers, a landmark one work on peaceful evangelization. And then in 1544 was consecrated as Bishop of Chiapas on March, uh, March 30th. And then in 1547, he returns to Spain and he got uh, to be a very close confidant of Charles V and many of the sort of ecclesiastical political figures of this time period and 1550 and 51, he has this kind of major debate with Juan Guinez de Sepulveda. And then in 1552, if you know anything about Las Casas, you're probably familiar with this destruction of the Indies. It's uh, been republished and translated into multiple languages and multiple editions. That really kind of bespeaks powerfully of the, the leveling effect of colonial desires. And he dies in Madrid in 1560. So it is arguably the case that the debate at Valladolid was the culmination of half-century intellectual, theological, religious, and political controversy regarding the Amerindians' identity, their rationality, their corresponding capacity to receive the faith, and equally importantly, the thorny relationship between colonial conquest and imposing or introducing Christianity to the otherwise idolatrous pagans, whose practice of cannibalism and child sacrifices were often presented to those in Iberian Peninsula who had not yet gone over to the New World as if that was a sum total universal practice among all. So that's a very, very important point to remember. 
So I want to kind of talk briefly about this particular people, another people bull published in 1537 by Paul III, Sublimius Deus. Because, and I will skip the sort of the contextual background because I realize I have 21 pages of single space, space and that's not going to be covered in an hour. So I'm going to skip the whole background part, but just get to the Sublimius Deus, which is a very interesting and important uh, kind of a, a declaration on the part of a leading ecclesiastic, namely the Pope, about the capacity of the Amerindians, um, their rationality and the capacity to receive the Christian faith. And he directly answers a question which seems kind of, in some ways, nonsensical to us 21st century moderns, but the question was a very live one. Are these Amerindians humans or not? So he wrote, the sublime God so loved the human race that he created humanity in such wise that he might participate not only in the good that other creatures enjoy, but endow them with capacity to attain to the inaccessible and invisible supreme good and behold it face to face. Since humanity, according to the testimony of sacred scriptures, has been created to enjoy eternal life and happiness, which none may obtain except through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is necessary that they should possess the nature and faculties enabling him to receive that faith. So there is a language that says, okay, it's much more positive and theological anthropology that they have, the, they have the nature and faculty that enables the human persons to receive that faith. And that whoever is thus endowed should be capable of receiving that same faith. Nor is it credible that anyone should possess so little understanding as to desire the faith, yet be destitute of the most necessary faculty to enable one to receive it. Hence Christ said, go ye and teach all nations. He said, all without exception, for all are capable of receiving the doctrines of faith. And here's a kind of turn here. The enemy of humanity who opposes all good deeds in order to bring mankind to destruction, beholding and envying this, invented a pernicious means never before heard of that stated that the Indians of the West and the South and other people of whom we have recent knowledge should be treated as brute beasts created for our service, pretending that they are incapable of receiving the Catholic faith. Thus the people both sublimius deus. This papal intervention was met by imperial interdiction by Charles V, who believed that this, his sovereignty was potentially undermined if this meddlesome Paul III's dicta were not opposed. In an effort to show who, made, who was truly in charge, Charles, through the Council of the Indies, which was the governing body that handled all the colonial affairs, which is a really gargantuan kind of bureaucratic machinery, that dealt with a lot of theological as well as economic and political, and they're all kind of interwoven together, by the way. And so he, through the Council of the Indies, had uh, this other Dominican, Min Minaya, who had talked to Paul III that got to this whole sublimius deus to come about. He was now sequestered in, in a convent in, in Spain in 1538 so that he couldn't go back to the New World. And the biggest effrontery was the confiscation of the papal original documents that Minaya had secured through his indefatigable campaign on behalf of the hapless victims in the New World. Adding insult to injury, Paul III was further hamstrung by Charles V since the Pope had to annul and recall all his pronouncements regarding the Indian affairs in his non indicens viditor of the same year. Even though this brief did not take away the theological significance and the political gain made by Sublimius Deus, this imperial papal fracas 
illustrates the degree of the conflict over the right taxonomy of the Amerindians, both for the capacity to receive the Christian faith and their ontological standing as those who bear the Imago Dei. Charles V also um, so ordered the Dominican prior at the Colegio San Esteban in Salamanca to stop any further disputations on the subject of the Indies, whether concerning the property, peoples, and propagation of faith therein. That's what politicians would do. I mean, as I wrote about in my last book about the late 17th century English controversy surrounding the Trinity, the, the king said, okay, no more conversation about the Trinity. Don't ever write about it. Don't talk about it. So when you cannot, when you're sort of an impasse, that's what you resort to, and understandably so, right? Don't, don't talk about this because it's going to create more confusion and more people will be led astray as a result of that. That royal order illustrates the degree to which Las Casas and others' efforts had made inroads, actually, in the homeland. So this same Charles V had ordered by 1550 this conversation or debate between uh, Sepulveda and Las Casas. And he said he ordered that serious and scrupulous inquiries be made by both to determine as far as one can whether the atrocities reported are true and to recommend a suitable plan by which such evil might be avoided and to develop the forms and laws to preach our holy Catholic faith in the new world, and finally to examine how those people may be subjected to us without damage to our conscience. Notice that interesting phrase, without damage to our conscience, according to the bull of Alexander. So this royal council in Valladolid in 1550 was a symbolic encapsulation of this debate uh, since 1492. What sort of creatures are they? Could they receive the true religion of Christianity and abandon their cannibalistic idolatry? So Juan Guinez de Sepulveda was a redoubtable opponent of For Las Casas. He was a jurist and a well-known translator and commentator on Aristotle's works. Having been educated at the University of Alcala, Sepulveda served as the, served the papal court in Rome. Upon his return to Spain in 1536, he was appointed as royal historian. His most infamous or famous text is Democratis Altar, Second Democratis, on, or on the just cause on the just cause of war against the Indians. For Sepulveda, the Indians, fun, the Indians were fundamentally inferior to the Spaniards. As he writes, in prudence, invention, and every manner of virtue and human sentiment, they're as inferior to, the, to Spaniards as children to adults, women to men, the cruel and inhumane to the gentle, those intemperate beyond all bound to the continent and moderate. In all but one of the extant manuscripts of his Democrates' altar, there's one more clause. Finally, I might also say, as monkeys to men. In clear contradistinction to Sepulveda's extremely racist and ethnocentric taxonomy, Las Casas believed this about the common bond of the Imago Dei, the image of God, in all humans. So he wrote, from their very origins, all rational creatures are born free, inasmuch as in one equal nature God has not made us slaves of one another, but has granted to all an identical freedom of choice. Therefore, one rational creature is not subordinate to another, as for example, one human being to another, seeing that freedom is a right present in human beings necessarily and per se, in virtue of the very principle of the rational creature. Therefore, freedom is a natural right. Several years ago, I gave a talk comparing Calvin and Las Casas as, and arguing that they were kind of proponents of universal human rights at 
Blackfriars College at Oxford University, which is the Dominican college. And so it was really an interesting, and the, par the, the passage that I kind of exegeted quite extensively was this one, therefore, freedom is a natural right. So for Las Casas, because God has endowed all humanity, this sense of belonging to God, and in that belonging to God, you shall find your freedom. Therefore, it is in that belonging to God is something that is intrinsic to who you are. Therefore, freedom itself is a natural right. Las Casas made it very clear that he wrote a history of the Indies in order to free my Spanish race from error, from the serious pernicious illusion in which it lives and has always lived until today. Judging that these oceanic peoples lack the nature of human beings, considering them brute beasts, incapable of virtue and learning, corrupting the good they possess, and exaggerating the evil among them. So what were Sepulveda's positions regarding the inferior, putatively inferior nature of the Amerindians and the justification for going to war against them to take their land as part of the Spanish Empire and their persons as slaves? First argument was based upon natural law. Indians are, as uh, Sepulveda writes, ob obliged by the natural law to obey those who are more outstanding in virtue and character in the same way that matter yields to form, body to soul, sense to reason, animals to human beings, women to men, children to adults. This is the natural order which the eternal and divine law commands to be observed according to Augustine. Therefore, if the Indians once warned, refuse to obey this legitimate sovereignty, they can be forced to do so for their own welfare by recourse to the terrors of war. Secondly, Sepulveda sought to prove that the Indians, though unwilling, must, quote, accept the Spanish yoke so that they may be corrected and be punished for their sins and crimes against the divine and natural laws by which they have been contaminated, just as the Amorites and Perizzites were exterminated by the children of Israel, the Amerindians were to be punished similarly, and we'll have a chance to look at um, Las Casas' theological exegesis on these Canaanite conquest narratives in just a minute. Thirdly, Sepulveda argued that the injuries and extreme misery which the Indians used to inflict on the victims of child sacrifice, their own people and others must be stopped. Therefore, you need Spanish intervention. Fourthly, conquering and subjugating them will make the spread of the gospel the easiest path and solution. Of all of these things that Sepulveda said, I couldn't quite really understand how the fourth could be true then, as I just couldn't get my head around that, but there is that. So um, Las Casas was convinced that even the alleged barbaric nature of the Indians does not negate the presence of the Imago Dei. So for Las Casas, the fundamentally shared presence of the Imago Dei was going to be the rallying point for him to speak about the, the non-racialized taxonomy. He really wants to emphasize the equality of all, as Calvin does in his Institutes 371, and we'll probably have a chance to talk about that tomorrow, which I would love to do. Um, and so he writes, again, if you want to be children of Christ and followers of the truth of the gospel, we should consider that even though these people may be completely barbaric, they are nevertheless created in God's image. They are our brothers, redeemed by Christ's most precious blood, no less than the wisest and most learned men and women in the whole world. Finally, we must consider it possible that some of them are predestined to become renowned and glorious in Christ's kingdom. Consequently, to these men who are wild and ignorant in their barbarism, and listen to this, we owe the right which is theirs, that is brotherly kindness and Christian love. Notice the language of rights there. What is the Indian's right? 
They have the right to demand what? Brotherly kindness and Christian love. The connective tissue of Imago Dei requires that you actually can demand as your right, you be nice to me because we have this similar kind of image of God, indeed the same image of God within us. And here we see this very interesting juxtaposition of free will argument and predestination and how they are kind of playing together. Uh, we'll probably talk about that a little bit in the Q&A time. And he offers a very kind of lacerating rebuke of the, the philosopher. Therefore, although the philosopher who was ignorant of Christian truth and love writes that wise may hunt down barbarians in the same way as they would wild animals, let no one conclude from this that the barbarians are to be killed or loaded like beasts of burden with excessive, cruel, hard, and harsh labor, and that for this purpose they can be hunted and captured by wiser men. Goodbye, Aristotle, he writes. From Christ our eternal truth, you have the command you must love neighbor as yourself. So their basic kind of back and forth was such that uh, he makes the sort of the, the, the Imago Dei argument and therefore leveling the sort of position that, that Sepulveda and others had in terms of their own kind of taxonomy that puts the, the Christian Spaniards on top of those who are yet to be Christians and of different complexion and color. Los Casas convinced that judged by their behavior, the god of the Spaniards will be judged by the Indians as the most detestable of all the gods. In fact, Las Casas says, if the Indians see us and examine our behavior, they must conclude that our god is gold. He goes on, why is it that Christ's sacred name is brought low by these blasphemies? The reason lies in the lives of Christians and their atrocious wars, which surpass all barbaric ferocity. Toward the end of his prepared treatise in chapter 62, Las Casas makes an impassioned plea. For him, subjection to the kingly rule of Christ could and should never be occasioned by military force. And its justification could never be based on skin color or putatively barbaric nature of the would-be subjugated peoples. Let's take a listen. Therefore, let us restrict war, the plague of body and soul, and embrace the preaching of the gospel and the sword of the divine word which are more effective than all human weapons, since the result of war will be that they hate the faith rather than embrace it. Therefore, let us restrict the word subject so that it is understood as meaning that subjection that will be born of the meek and gentle preaching of the divine word. Subject must be taken in this sense and this sense alone, especially since the bull of the Roman pontiff Paul III, is referring to Sublimius Deus, expressly forbids these detestable wars that are waged against the Indians under the pretext of religion. Now, I want us to move forward to the late 1670s and 80s and see how this racial taxonomy continued on in the identity formation of another group of European Christians who saw themselves as Protestants that is, the Anglicans and their experience of colonial experimentation and need to classify the others and justify their way in the world. Morgan Godwin and Sacramental Ontology. So put it in a very crude nutshell format, we're trying to answer these three questions in this section. Why did the English show hesitation in and fear of baptizing their African slaves? although that'll change with the new law passed in Virginia. Question two, how did Morgan Godwin answer their question and seek to assuage their fears? Question three, what does this polemical exchange tell us about the changing role of sacramental identity and theology of race in the age of transatlantic slavery? 
The person whose peripatetic translearning moves have been well, quite well documented and whose narrative will be the focus of this second half of this paper is Reverend Morgan Godwin. Morgan Godwin, who lived from 1640 to, we're not exactly sure when he died. So um, he shows up on books on early Virginia. Uh, they mention him. Books on early American slavery cannot do without him. Books on the history of slavery make a big deal about Godwin, all of which are helpful not as a precursor of the abolitionist movement, mind you, nor as a person who should have gotten further and know better and done more. Instead, I want to situate him in the politics of race and religion and polemics of sacramental theology as a Restoration Anglican living in Virginia and Barbados. I'd like to offer three vignettes to get our thinking rightly situated and contextualized. Richard Legan, a business agent and natural science writer, traveled to the Caribbean and wrote true and exact histories of the island of Barbados in 1657, leaving a tantalizing story which highlights a theme of theme intention. He showed an African slave named Sambo how the compass works. And awestruck by the stupendous superiority of the Christian deity, Sambo desired to become a Christian. Upon the slave's insistence, Ligon came to the master of the plantation and the following dialogue ensued. When I came home, spoke to the master of the plantation and told him that poor Sambo desired much to be a Christian. But the master's answer was that the people of that island were governed by the laws of England, and by those laws we could not make a Christian a slave. I told him my request was far different from that, for I desired, to, desired, him, to, desired him to make a slave a Christian. His answer was that, that it was true there was great difference in that, but being once a Christian, he could no more account him a slave, and so lose the hold they had on them as slaves, by making them Christians, and by that means should open such a gap as all the planters in the island would curse him. So I was struck mute, and poor Sambo kept out of the church, as ingenious, as honest, and as good a natured poor soul as ever wore black or eat green. Second vignette, Baptism Laws of 1667 in Virginia, passed by the General Assembly. Act 3 writes, an act declaring that baptism of slaves doth not exempt them from bondage. Where some doubts have, and this is a, a Virginia General Assembly's passing laws about religion, where some doubts have arisen whether children that are slaves by birth and by the charity and piety of their owners made partakers of the blessed sacrament of baptism should be virtue of their baptism be made free. Questions arose. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom, that diverse masters free from this doubt and question may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity by permitting children, those slaves, or those of greater growth, if capable, to be admitted to that sacrament. Very interesting to me. And third vignette is this. When ministering in Barbados and as a result of baptizing a slave we desired earnestly, he hears from the slave's master. Godwin was told that he might as well baptize a puppy as a certain young Negro. Another lady, possibly under Godwin's pastoral oversight, was in a fit of rage upon finding out that he had baptized a male Negro of hers about 30 years old. She sent Godwin this message, which had been reprinted in a number of books in the past three decades or so. That baptism was to one of those no more beneficial 
than to her black dog. Why were the majority of colonial plant planters in the late 17th century English Atlantic world hesitant to baptize their African slaves? Or what were they afraid of anyway? As Godwin insisted, many feared and maintained a view with much vehemency and indignation that baptizing their slaves was the, listen to this, ready way to have all their throats cut, etc. That statement surely registers 9.0 on the rhetorical Richter scale. Baptizing someone is equivalent to having your own throat cut? What's going on here? This fear factor ripe among the planters was the supposed right to freedom and being set at liberty immediately upon baptism, which is by some apprehended to be in and itself a release from servitude. So this whole manumission debate, once you baptize a slave, then he or she is no longer a slave, but a brother or sister in Christ. Therefore, does it, does it not obligate the slave owner to set them free? Thus, this Virginia uh, Assembly's baptismal law of 1667, trying to answer that, trying to answer it by saying, no, it does not free them. It frees them spiritually, but it does not free them in this world physically and in their obligation. And as Godwin will tell us, he's a very interesting character because he's not an abolitionist. He's not at all saying that, well, we should actually do away with slavery, but he has a very interesting take that actually gets the ball rolling a little bit further down in terms of equaling the playing field between whites and non-whites. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's going to be the focal point of our conversation. So for Godwin, there was an internal hermeneutical tension between the freedom from servitude of sin that all new baptized Christians were to experience normatively and the freedom from all types of servitude, especially that of chattel slavery. Such was precisely the reason why the planters felt that the New Testament teaching on human equality at the foot of the cross, if wrongly interpreted, wrongly interpreted could mean a death knell for their financial well-being. So who was Morgan Godwin? Uh, it came from a true blood, true blue blood ecclesiastical order uh, in terms of upper echelon. His great-grandfather, Thomas Godwin, was chaplain to Elizabeth I and Bishop of Bath and Wells. His grandfather, Francis Godwin, was Bishop of Hereford, and his father, Morgan Godwin, was a canon of Hereford Cathedral. Sometime in 1666 or 67, Godwin set sail to Virginia. And after two or three years stint in a relatively uneventful ministry in which he came into conflict with the Paris Vestry. Godwin left to Barbados to minister in that busting English colonial outpost, which thanks to the extremely lucrative sugar industry, had quickly become a hotbed of African slave trade. As a relatively young and ideologically driven and passionate person, Godwin became a vociferous critic of the abuses of the slavery system. Abuses. It is important to pinpoint, however, that Godwin was not a precursor of the abolitionist movement, for he did not see any problems with the system of slavery itself. This is the irony of history itself, and how at times it is the process, not overnight product, that we need to be paying close attention in terms of their theologic and rhetoric. Godwin's meta-critique on slavery was twofold. One, the abjectly dehumanizing praxis and tendency of the barbarian, the Barbadian planters could not in any way be construed as consistent with the spirit of Jesus. Two, the great resistance and unwillingness for the planters to baptize their slaves. 
The turning point for Godwin was when he found out that a slave who had been baptized in Barbados thus had to miss work on Sunday morning, ended up experiencing an afternoon's baptism in blood. This vignette serves a fuller quotation. But the Negro at his return did not escape so easily. The brutish overseer instantly taking him to task and giving him to understand that that, that meaning the Sunday morning baptism, was no Sunday work for those of his complexion, that he had other business for him, the neglect whereof should cost him an afternoon's baptism in blood. Those I heard were his very words, as in the morning he had received the baptism with water, which he accordingly made good, of which the Negro afterward complaining to the same minister and he to the then governor, the miserable wretch was forever after so unmercifully treated by that inhumane devil that to avoid his cruelty, betaking himself to the woods, the slave then perished. Godwin excoriated this dastardly deed as exceeding in cruelty vis-a-vis -vis the, all the ex examples of Turkish barbarity and of the most savage creatures. He was certain that for such a man a special baptism was waiting, a baptism in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Godwin's passion for introducing Christianity to their slaves and the issues he had with racializing taxonomy is found in the following four treatises. One of them is over there in display right now. The Negroes and Indians advocates suing for their admission into the church published in 1680. A supplement to the Negroes and Indians advocate published in 1681. The revival or direction for a sculpture describing the extraordinary care and diligence of our nation in publishing the faith among the infidels in America and elsewhere, 1682. And trade preferred before religion, which was published in 1685 as a revised sermon he had preached at Westminster Abbey and other prominent London churches. And he is said to have inspired the formation of the Society of Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, which was founded in 1701, also known as SPG. I want to talk about this phrase that he mentions in his The Negroes and Indians Advocate and repeats that in the supplement to The Negroes and Indians Advocate in the next year's publication. That is, colors as a means of grace. Color as a means of grace. He, let's see what he says. Godwin found the notion that even, their, even hermaphrodites or dwarfs were, at least according to Anglican canons, capable of benefices without dispensation, meaning that these individuals could be mediating persons of sacramental actions. Truly scandalous, especially when compared to the notion that an African slave without any bodily defect could not be qualified as a candidate for receiving the sacramental grace of baptism. Godwin's rhetorical strategy was to pile examples of sheer lunacy and ludicrousness so that the reductio ad absurdum would be final interpretive dead end. So he writes that the distinction of complexion and color as a way of privileging of one group above another was a, what he would say, a strange and before unheard of conceit in divinity, that colors are a means of grace and have a power in them to recommend us to God. If sacraments are defined in an Augustinian sense as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, then it is truly intriguing that in the preface of his Negroes and Indians advocate, he appropriates a sacramental reality and language, referring to the Eucharist. For a millennium, no one felt compelled to prove that bread was bread and not flesh, he writes. For everyone believed in the sacramental reality of transubstantiation, 
But now, with the Reformation, the putative real presence of Christ in the Eucharist became a major bone of contention. In the same way, God, Godwin averred that the notion of complexion or color was a site of God's sacramental action. Does a white face reflect God's gracious presence more conspicuously or brilliantly? What of a black face? Curse of damnation, he asks. He finishes preface by opining that a notion of monogenesis and the convertibility of all human beings, irrespective of colors, was being radically redefined, thus necessitating this particular um, work. God, Godwin's fight toward inclusion and equality. He really goes after the barbarity of the planters, more perniciously evil than physical acts of brutality or emotional torment of the concatenating bondage itself was the systematic and sustained hindering of the full inclusion of the African slaves as members of the Church of England. He thundered, if that is not sin, then neither is perjury, neither is murder, nor adultery. He was determined to prove the Negro's humanity and to show that neither their complexion or bondage, descent or country can, can be any impediment thereto. For God, when this became the very basis for the sacramental action of perichoresis or participation and caritas. Then there is a section that I will have to skip that deals with this whole curse of ham business that he really kind of does a, a, a detailed theological exegesis to show how that is an untenable um, position. And um, for Godwin, this biogenesis issues was of paramount significance because um, they were arguing that there were these kind of pre-Adamites, and then so Europeans came from Adam, and then non-Europeans came from pre-Adamites, and that became one of the major, major debates around this time period. And the, the planter's esoteric exegesis of Genesis 1, 27, 28, 2, 7, 4, 15, and 9, 25, and 9, 26, led them to lump together three interrelated hermeneutical trajectories regarding the beginnings of humanity. First, two supported the pre-Adamite ideology regarding the Africans. The third maintained that Africans are descendants from Cain. And the fourth text buttressed the idea that they were posterity of that unhappy son of Noah, Ham. From these three disparate interpretive strands, the planters happily did, quote, infer their Negroes' brutality, justify their reduction of them under bondage, dis disable them from all right and claims, even to religion itself, pronounce them, reprobates, and upon a sudden transmute them into whatsoever substance the exigencies of their wild reasonings shall drive them to. So he goes to dismantle this particular um, viewpoint with this kind of very committed uh, notion that all of us, regardless of color, and it's kind of interesting that at the end of the 17th century, there is somebody who argues this kind of color kind of argument to show that all of us, in, in the way that Las Casas didn't exactly come out and talk about color in the way that we think of color or as Godwin thought about color, but he does that very, very clearly here. And let me just round the corner and try to finish. Godwin offered his theological syllogism to show that all slaves, African or otherwise, had an innate ability for choosing eternal joy in God. The fact that God promises eternal felicity or tragedy in heaven or hell was a clear indicator that there was liberty, at least if not an ability, with sufficient means allowed both to obtain the good and to avoid the evil, 
consequently the keeping or neglect thereof. So what I see here in between both Las Casas and Godwin is this kind of commitment to a sort of a universal ability for all human beings to choose the good and avoid the evil. And there is a kind of very interesting kind of a, a I don't want to say Arminian because that's sort of a, um, perhaps being kind of anachronistic, especially uh, applied to Las Casas, but a much more optimistic anthropology in order to, and I, this is what I'm getting at, in order to defend the ability of non-Europeans' capacity to receive the faith, you don't want to make the argument that their, their free will is so greatly hampered that they cannot make the sort of move toward God. I could be corrected on that, but that's um, my particular standpoint right now. Then he cites an homiletical example of a preacher in Barbados whose sermon on Christmas Day focused on the activity of the Holy Spirit for the salvation of the Ethiopian treasurer. For this preacher, likely, I think, Godwin himself, the actions of the Spirit in Acts chapter 8 and 15 were clear exegetical indicators of the calling and conversion of the all Negroes as the desire of God. Godwin further pointed out that his this Africa, notwithstanding the blackness of his face, had a whiter soul than most of our European refined Christians. This rhetorical inversion was predicated on the assumption that this myth of the Ethiopian treasurer was at least as equally effective as a source of blessing over against the curse of Ham, which was far more primordial in its historical origins and prominence. Let me conclude. Juxtaposing Godwin's lacerating rebuke of the planter's brutality with his ultimate legitimation of the institution of slavery, so long as the slaves were taught the faith and are baptized, might seem utterly incongruous at best, and an act of hypocritical time-serving, the very thing that he had been accusing the planters in Virginia and Barbados of doing at worst. Where do we go? Here, this uh, historian from Temple University, Travis Glasson's analysis is, at least for me, extremely illuminating. He writes, Christianizing slavery as Godwin envisioned would have entailed massive changes in how it functioned. Yet Godwin's work also shows how Anglican belief in the necessity of hierarchy as a guarantor of social stability, fueled by memories of the civil wars and applied to the novel situation emerging in the Atlantic world, could act as a counterweight to desire for moral reform. I would like to end this lecture with a surprisingly Trinitarian and eschatological reflection on the question of why there are different skin colors, hues and races of people and ethnicities. Samuel Purchase is perhaps best known for his travelogues, especially this compilation, Purchase, His Pil Pilgrimage, 1613. It is, you know, it's a huge folio volume and that went through multiple editions and multiple kind of revisions and so on, a milestone of secondary travel narratives. I say secondary travel narratives because he never traveled himself. He compiled lots of stories and wrote, and it became like a bestseller. And so, but Samuel Purchase, toward the end of his description of the origin of color diversity, which I just happened to stumble upon just a few days ago, I was really blown away because I didn't think they would talk about it in the way that this person did. Purchase has this to say, as for secret things both in heaven and earth, they belong to the Lord our God, whose holy name be blessed forever. For that he hath revealed to us things most necessary, both for body and soul, in the things of this life and that which is to come. His incomprehensible unity, which the angels which cover, with covered faces in their holy, 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 hymns resound and laud in trinity, hath pleased, in the, hath pleased in this variety to diversify his works, all serving one human nature, 
infinitely multiplied in persons, exceedingly varied in accidents, that we also might serve that one most high God, the tawny Moor, black Negro, dusky Libyan, ash-colored Indian, olive-colored American, should with the wider European become one sheepfold under one great shepherd, till this mortality being swallowed, swallowed up of life, we may all be one, as he and the Father are one, and all this variety swallowed up into an ineffable unity, only the language of Canaan be heard, only the Father's name written in their foreheads, the Lamb's song in their mouths, filling heaven and earth with their everlasting hallelujahs, without any more distinction of color, nation, language, sex, condition, all may be one in him that is one and only blessed forever. Published in 1613. The realization of that vision, clearly redolent of the writer of the Apocalypse of St. John, was not going to happen with Purchase, Bartolome de las Casas, or Morgan Godwin. Nor is it happening among us today if Charlottesville tragedy is any indication at all. Then the Reformation mantra, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, the Reformed Church always reforms itself, has an asymptotic nature in that it was an ideal to which we aspire even if we might not get there during our earthly peregrinations. Thank you very much. questions we have microphones so we have it's being recorded so if uh, you have a question just wait for the microphone and I'll let you recognize okay thank you uh oh <laughs> so um, uh, just to, just a uh, I'm going to start by referring to a book, so yeah. a modern book, Colin Kidd's The Oh, yeah, sure. Race. That's right. That's right. And his, this is a Scottish historian. Yeah, great book. Primarily in the 18th century. Yeah. And arguing that, uh, that it's uh, monogenesis versus, yes. what's the alternative to monogenesis, uh, whatever it is. Yes. Uh, Plurogenesis. That, yeah. that is the enlightenment that repudiates the, the biblical account of monogenesis and yes. therefore paves the way toward a sharply racialized taxonomy of yeah. justifies, I should say. Yes. So my, out of that book comes the question, which I think is his question, when, you know, at what is, is, is there a clear turning point? And your, your, your wonderful uh, comments about Goodwin, Godwin and Las Casas uh, suggest that that's a quest that's sort of unending. It has no clear single place to land hmm. where it was that suddenly the, there was clarity in the Western tradition, the Western intellectual tradition, or the Western Protestant tradition, or the Western Catholic tradition, where this choice was clear. I mean, it's, 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 it comes up, it comes up, it comes up, it comes up. Yes. But it doesn't seem to be fully confronted, and that might be still the story of today, that it keeps coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. And then that, that record, then what, that was the case, you know, that kid is both right and yeah. not right, then, uh, then the question is how does one escape this impasse of the constant recurrence of racial taxonomies versus the constant 
critiquing from a theological point of view or yeah. biblical point of view or theological point of view that these exist. Why, why is this dichotomy so, as it were, with us always rather than uh, being, being disrupted in some really serious way? Right. Thank you. That's a great question. So um, let's talk about the world that you and I know well. That is the sort of the Puritan world, right, of the early modern period. Um, I think it's a hermeneutical issue, right? Because, and let's talk about the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, the identity of the ancient Israelites. Could that be replicated? Should any nation say, okay, we're going to be into this Aaron in the wilderness, and we're going to carry on the work that God has given to the ancient Israel? We're going to do that, and we're exceptionally doing that. You and I are talking about American exceptionalism or that sort of thing, right? So city on a hill and so on and so forth. And what I wrestle with is could any nation, I mean, there have been nations, right? Should any group, people group, interpret the Bible so as to identify one-on-one that is us today? Like they were, so we were, you see what I mean? The ancient Israelites' identity and mission is what we have today, right? And I think that is always a very interesting a place to be in terms of one's, because if we really, uh, in our kind of ancient Israelite self-fashioning, then are we called upon to do whatever that they did? And I think history is replete with examples of that sort of hermeneutical mishap or tragedy that gave the theological warrant. I mean, I've been, I've been listening as I was writing this lecture, uh, both Bob Dylan and Joan Baez's rendition of With God on Our Side. You listen to this and we read the lyrics, it's basically with God on our side, you can justify just any old blessed or dastardly thing. So I do think that where does that coming from? It comes from our own hermeneutics, right? How we read and embody scripture. Embody especially the, the, the story, and that's why the part that I didn't get to talk much about, Las Casas' excoriation of Sepulveda is that you actually don't understand because you're dwelling in the sort of the, the days of the ancient Israelites, but we have, so he's sort of a proto-dispensationalist in a way. Like we have the, the better days of Jesus, so in the economy under Jesus, that's sort of uh, whatever you call it, right? Sort of the wiping out the harem or the genocidal efforts and endeavors are never allowed. So I think that sort of a canonical check and balance is there that helps, you know, uh, even as we read scripture, that that's not the pathway we're going to take. And so I do think, and I'm not, one, once again, making sort of some kind of hagiographical portraiture of Las Casas. I mean, he certainly was, you know, a person of his own times. But I do think that how we embody and in, in, interpret scripture is absolutely huge, especially that sort of exceptional, like we as a nation, and I think the phrase American exceptionalism, where is that coming from? I think, you know, Patrick Collinson wrote in one of his essays that I think quotes one of the Puritans who said that God is English, right? And that's understandable in this sort of anti-Catholic kind of rant, right? So, but then if God is English, then well, is God only for the English? Then what does that make your particular nation vis-a-vis other nations? And what could it do in our diplomacy, in the way that we embody our own religious and political identities? And I think that to me is sort of my, my own kind of small eureka moment, like, ah, this is really a matter of hermeneutics, how we interpret and, and kind of embody scripture in the way that we do our own kind of praxis, not only just in my own piety, but in my interhuman, intercommunal, international dealings in my, in my hermeneutics, I think is a very key one.
There's, yep. Yeah, I want to follow up on the question of hermeneutics yep. and ask, um, what's the relationship you, as someone who knows this archive really well at this point and also knows theology really well, like systematic, dogmatic theology, what's the relationship you see between a hermeneutic that gravitates toward this kind of fascist collapse between ideas and particular kinds of bodies and dogmatics themselves? So as you've read across the various Reformation era traditions, do you see certain categories of dogmatic theology sort of being more vulnerable to that kind of reading and other ones being more resistant to it? Or do you see human beings sort of drawing from whatever tradition they're in, whatever set of dogmatics they're reading, and doing this move or resisting it? Does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit. I, th I think so. Let me try to answer it, and you can tell me okay. if I'm not answering it right. So. Um, um, you had uh, Professor Gregory from Notre Dame here, and he and I have gotten to know each other a lot, uh, professionally, I think, and we sort of became friends as well. Um, I use his uh, book, uh, the, Unintended, uh, the Unintended Reformation, as a textbook for my Reformation history class. And I was kidding around with Brian and said, you know, at least there are 70 people per semester buying your book, and that's, that's not bad. I mean, I, <laughs> so... Um, I'm sure he was grateful. It is a great book, and, and I, I don't know that I agree with all the way, but... Um, I mean, he knows that we've gone in print in talking about that, right? So, um, so I do think that one of the questions that I have about this particular period um, is the question of uh, papal authority and, and what right, so what does the, what does papal authority entail, right? Because if it really entails the sort of conferring upon secular potentates the right to go claim the land that's already Christ's, um, I don't think Pope Francis will do that. Now, why wouldn't he? Is it because one's a better pope than the other? Or is it something about the way they, they understand their own identity and their tradition that would not allow one to make that kind of claim? Or maybe they couldn't get away with it? I'm not sure. But I do think that that, to me, is a very key question of authority. And so um, many will say with Protestants, I mean, Erasmus et al. have said, you know, Luther at all, you know, if you start and move away from this one pope, what you're going to end up with inevitably, this kind of a hermeneutical wild, wild west, within which you will have multiple hundreds, if not thousands of popes running around, interpreting scripture, ex cathedra, my way or the highway. I mean, so I do think that there is that kind of uh, um, question of authority that's always coming up for me again and again, I think. And when I read that Intercetera kind of bull of 1493, it really, it really kind of struck me as, wow. I mean, there is a sincerity and, and, and authenticity in, in what was published. I mean, that's what you sincerely believed. And so the question for me is um, sort of a, a Catholic question is, does the church um, still believe it? Is, that, is it part of papal prerogative? Or is it a misreading of the thing? And so what I find really interesting about the theologians of Salamanca school was that they weren't really sure whether that actually, because I mean, like I said in the paper, uh, quoting Pagden, they were sure that you couldn't do that. The only right you had was right to evangelize, not go and take away somebody else's land. So there's an intra-Catholic conversation that's already taking place about the racial other. And I do think that that kind of, I guess my basic point is that, I mean, I'm having this chapter in this book, but then I'm thinking more about 
And I was dis- glad and disappointed in Colin Kidd's book because I was like, oh, somebody did the work already, but I want to do it more focusedly on the early modern period and, and particularly with the theological lens. But I think this question of how does one's identity that is so enmeshed with your community belonging, as a Catholic Christian, you owe your ultimate allegiance on earth to your, I mean, for Las Casas, it is to your superior and ultimately to the Pope, um, and what authority then is the kind of ultimate question of allegiance? Who, to whom do I owe my ultimate allegiance? Is it going to be Christ and is it going to be Aristotle? Is it going to be my Dominican superior and so on and so forth? So I think we'd love to explore that question tomorrow about authority, individual and institutional, and how did it work itself out in the Reformation period? Because to me, that's a really a key issue, is the, the, the question of debates about authority in the Reformation conversations and controversies. So... <clears throat> Yes, I guess there's a mic coming around for you. Um, I'm just sort of beginning to learn about all of this, so perhaps this is sort of an ignorant but maybe helpful question as well. Yes. Um, It seems sort of surprising to me to imagine that there wouldn't be a reaction from within any tradition that encounters something so radically new as a new world, yeah. um, that wouldn't be a que- like a, just this radical questioning of validity. So you mentioned the right to evangelize, yeah. and I imagine as well it was seen as a responsibility to evangelize. Yes. In this whole discussion of whether or not the uh, American Indians and African peoples should be allowed or, or are capable of, of receiving Christ, was there never a... a question of should we be do they need doing that yeah (laughs) Yeah, right should they should we be doing this yeah uh, at all yeah Yeah. so um i often share with my students and colleagues that you know history is always messier than theology right (laughs) because you know like my own life story does not live up to what i confess in my own theology and there's a kind of a you know, you got to mind a gap that exists between the two. So I think your question is an absolutely spot-on one, and that is, um, so we might think, some of us might think that, well, to, to do that itself is a problem. Um, and some of my students at Vanderbilt thought that Las Casas et al. should never have done that. And then that could have just obviated the entire problem. I don't know whether that's, I mean, that certainly wasn't an option for them, I think. So Las Casas wasn't saying the way to get rid of the problem is stop evangelizing. No, Las Casas said that is, so Las Casas said they had a capacity to respond and they have the right, inherent right, to demand from us the love of God. And Las Casas' own worldview demanded that he share the gospel without force. So coercive means of evangelization, absolutely unallowed. But in his particular, and I I would say that in the prevailing thrust among Christians throughout the world then and even now, was that evangelism was somewhat tantamount to, if I have an iPhone and love my iPhone, I ought to be able to tell you that you should actually stop using Androids and start using iPhones, or vice versa. I actually happen to own an Android, and I would make that argument with my wife who owns an iPhone. It says you should stop using an iPhone and get, start using Androids, and so on and so forth. I mean, so if conversion, if evangelism is seen as telling somebody about the good that you possess as a gift, that I want to share it with you and give it to you because it is meant to be shared, then I think we can kind of, because whenever we talk about 
missionaries. I think some people, um, especially in my particular institutional context, that word is a dirty word and should never be done again. And I usually try to say, well, look, so if it is seen as just kind of sharing something that I really believe to be wonderful, but I'm not, in my sharing with you, I'm not saying that I'm going to own and possess you because there's a history of that. So I think history alerts us from being, I mean, so enthusiastic about that particular modality of Christian existence. But at the same time, I don't know whether that's um, necessarily and by definition the case. And I do think that for Las Casas, he felt that that was... Yeah, I mean, he didn't think that sharing the gospel was a problem, but the way that it was carried out, and that's why he says, you know, for many of the Amerindians, when they see you, uh, they would believe that your God is gold because that's what you run after more passionately than anything else. I think that's, um, that's a particular point that I think is important to remember. So, Kevin? Oh, that was so rich, there's so much to say. Yeah. I wanted to um, ask you a question that actually uh, David asked at the yes. end of his comment. Uh, yes. Namely, why is this distinction between monogenesis and polygenesis, why is it always with us? Um, and I'm wondering if the answer is that uh, we always have polygenesis because it can be so easily harnessed by uh, imperialists, by those who would subjugate others, yeah. um, by fascists, uh, and so forth. Inevitably, I'm, I'm going to the corner of the Nazi period, for which I apologize. But um, one of the things the Nazis, as you know, uh, argued was that, uh, and even Christian yeah. uh, theologians in Germany argued, was that uh, God had not, in fact, created a single race. He had created many races. Um, and one of those races uh, was uh, a race of Jews. That race was different than other races. And mm -hmm. the Germans are certainly... Sure. The Aryans are different than that. Yeah, race. yeah, yeah. And um, so, as a consequence, baptism is utterly uh, inefficacious mm. with respect to... Jews. I, th I, th I think about the woman uh, to whom you referred who said, baptizing this slave yeah. is exactly analogous to baptizing, my, baptizing dog. my black dog. Yes. And although she didn't know it, she had, I think, an implicit view of polygenesis. This black slave was something. Mm. Yes. That he, right. Know, no, that's exactly right. Yes. He was racially different. Than yes. Right. Um, so I, I'm just wondering at the end of the day if it's just not simply... Uh, economic, political, imperialistic power. Uh, I have another utterly <laughs> question, but why don't you follow up on that, David? I'm going to intervene here slightly. By, uh, we have a, a distinguished guest here uh, uh, from uh, Fuller, who's an expert on the history of Christianity in Asia. Can I invite you, uh, Scott, to Thank you. Okay. I was hoping to just sit here quietly. Um, I'm the dean of a school that used to be called the School of World Mission. And uh, we don't think it's a dirty word. Uh, we have people from all, and this morning I had breakfast with uh, Kachin, who's working with Karen in Myanmar, and Rohingyas, who are being massacred by the government in Myanmar. A Nigerian working in Togo, a Korean working in Pakistan. I mean, it's just a really strange uh, place where I'm, I'm living right now. But I think your point is very well taken. Um, 
Iberians going to the, the New World, this was unbelievable what they saw. They had no idea that this was going on. And for anybody to give any kind of credibility to these people as really being human when they saw what they saw as you know, inhuman things would, would be amazing. My point that I was going to bring up or ask you about is the, the influences as people are processing what they're experiencing. Um, humanist thought was coming through uh, Salamanca. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a very strong uh, sure. humanist area, and yep. that was the struggle, because that is where Aristotle came in. Yep. Now, if you take Aristotle out of the picture and you have something more you know, puritanical and just biblical, you don't have that problem. And so the humanist tradition, which is coming at the same time as the Reformation, and if you look at the Reformation from Spain up, it's that same king, uh, uh, Carlos mm -hmm. first, yes. oh, he's Carlos fifth, yes. um, who is going to be going in just a few years uh, to the Diet of Worms. Yep. Um, so you have these kind of connections there, but, but the humanist thought was creating a way of thinking about humans that was much more hierarchical mm -hmm. and demanded that you make decisions that you have to find out where people, people stand. And I was just wondering if you could talk about the Reformation ideas and the humanist ideas together as sorting through that as these people, they, they didn't have an option, they had to be missionaries because they believed that extra ecclesia nulla salus, there's no salvation yeah. otherwise. Right, right. Maybe we can talk about it later on tonight since I'll see you tonight. I, I, uh, I, I'm in the awkward position of uh, <clears throat> saying that time is running out here. Uh, it is running out. I, I'm gonna declare unigenesis, monogenesis, time <laughs> is running out. The, the end is, the end is approaching. The end times are approaching. <laughs> so I, I want to, sorry, Scott, for future discussion. And uh, Paul, we thank you very, very much. Thank you. I, I would say methodologically, as a, as a historian, I, I, I'm going to take one more minute here. That is to say that the intersection of the richly, complexly, and often sad uh, historical with theology uh, leads the historian to hope that there's something in theology to rescue us from that complexities of history, the mustiness of history, but then we realize how messy theology is, <laughs> and especially the darn Bible. Gosh, <laughs> if we hadn't had those New Test Old Testament kings, how much better off we might be. Never know. Never know. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you all for being here.